Genesis chapter number 32. We'll begin reading in verse number 22 and read through the remainder of the chapter. Verse 22, The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the fort of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you have asked my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. A story of transformation is always an intriguing one. We've all watched uh, movies where there's an antagonist who is despised that later becomes a good guy that we wind up rooting for. Something either in the story or in the person seems to change either in the character of the story or the character of the person then we begin to root for them. We see them differently. Our story today, our narrative is very similar to that. Jacob throughout his life had been lying, scheming, fighting, and running his whole life primarily because of things that he had done. Just reading about Jacob's life is exhausting. I don't know if you've read about his life, but it's exhausting. Today I want you to see four main points that will guide us through this text. I want you to see number one, Jacob's state or his situation. Number two, Jacob's struggle. Number three, I want you to see Jacob's surrender. And lastly, number four, Jacob's success. Firstly, let's look at uh, Jacob's state or his situation. This is found in verses 22 through 24a. To, to set Jacob's state or his situation, there's a few things that you need to, let, to know. Letter A is his context. The Bible sets forth Jacob's life in blocks up until our text. And as it prevents, uh, presents his life, it purposely is setting forth his character. All along the way, it is setting up to show you who this man really is by his nature. Block number one is Jacob's birth. It's in Genesis 25, 21 through 26, where Rebekah, his mother's pregnant. She experiences great pain that causes her to go to God to inquire what the cause is of this pain. God tells her that she's pregnant with twins and that they're already fighting together in her womb. He tells her that the older shall serve the younger and that uh, that's not the norm. That's not typically how it happens. But when she gives birth to Esau first, he comes out first and then Jacob is right on his heels, pun intended. He comes out, and the Bible says in Genesis 25, 26, afterward his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was Jacob. They called him that. The reason that it means this is how he receives his name is it means to be taken, to take by the heel, to cheat, or to be a supplanter. To be a supplanter, it means to take the place of another, especially by force or treachery. So Esau speaks about Jacob's name in uh, chapter 27, verse 36. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. So Jacob was named this because of how he came out of the womb. We see that block one about Jacob's birth. Block two, we see how Jacob takes advantage of and gets the birthright from Esau in Genesis 25, 29 through 34. Esau had been out in the field and he stayed to the point of, of exhaustion. Then he comes in and he sees that Jacob had made some stew and 
He said in an exclamatory way, he said, give me some of this stew. I'm about to die. So Jacob sees his opportunity to take advantage of Esau and the situation. And he says, well, give me your birthright. The birthright was a, a double portion of the inheritance. And so Esau said, well, it's not going to benefit me. The inheritance doesn't, the double portion doesn't do anything for me if I'm dead. So he gives that. He vows that to his brother. So we see Jacob doesn't have any regard for anyone but himself. Block number three, Jacob deceives his father and uh, steals uh, the blessing from Esau. It comes time for Isaac, Isaac to give his blessing to Esau, his firstborn. So he sends him out into the field. He says, go get the food that I love. And so Isaac or Jacob yet again sees an opportunity to take advantage of this situation. His mother helps him and says, while Esau's gone to get this food, his mother prepares something for him and he takes advantage of his father's old age and his blindness. And he comes in and he pretends to be his brother. His dad can't see well. He disguises his voice and, and he tries to pretend to be Esau. So whenever this happens, he gets the blessing. His dad gives him the blessing. And then when Esau comes back in and he finds out he's irate and he says, I'm going to kill my brother. This is the, the, the chilling words of the Bible says this. Rebecca called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, behold, your brother Esau comforts himself by planning to kill you. That's an amazing thought that the way that he comforts himself by what you did is he he comforts himself with the thought that when dad's dead, he's going to kill you. You see the blocks that are being set up. It's setting up the character of this man. Then finally, block four, because of what happens, Jacob is told by his mother to flee to Uncle Laban's house. So he on his way, when he flees, God appears to him and he renews the covenant that he made with his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac and says that I will be with you. He flees to Laban and the deception gets worse and worse. There is deception between him and Laban. Uh, they go back and forth. They deceive one another. He takes uh, a wife from Laban and he's tricked into having another wife. He has two wives. One is enough. Can I get a witness? He gets two wives. He's there for 20 years. The deception, they go back and forth. They one-up each other over and over. And then he finally has enough of it. He says, I'm going to flee. So from the time that he left, that he fled because of what he did to Esau and stealing his blessing, to the time that he flees is 20 years. You see the character being set up in the nature of this man in the Bible that he tells us about. Now that sets up the context leading into chapter 32 where we're at today. God sends, as, as he leaves this place, God sends angels to meet Jacob. And then when that happens, he, he, he sees that it, I've got to do something. Esau is still out there. There's still this issue with Esau. So he sends his own messengers to see what's going on with Esau. The messengers come back and said, yes, Esau is coming to meet you. And he's got 400 men with him. So he's terrified. He has a militia with him going to come and meet him. The last thing that he heard was that he's comforted himself with the thought of killing him. So he's terrified. That is the context that leads us up to the state and the situation that's in his life. That's letter A. But then we get here to our text. In verse 22 it says, That same night... He arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children and crossed the fort of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything that he had. And Jacob was left alone. That's the context. Letter A. Now letter B, we see the location that he's at the fort of Jabbok. This is a low point in every way imaginable for Jacob. Jabbok literally means a pouring out or a wrestling can you see what's coming? The word itself literally means a wrestling. It's one of the streams on the east of Jordan which falls about midway between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. It's about 45 miles below the Sea of Galilee. It rises on the eastern side of the mountains of Gilead and runs a course of about 65 miles in a wild and steep, deep ravine. So this place geographically is a ravine 
It's a low point. It's in a valley geographically. There's symbolism here because this actual location symbolizes where Jacob is at in his life. He is in a low point since this symbolizes where he's at this location. Letter C, we see his responsibilities that sets up the state or the situation he's in. He's responsible for a lot of people. He's got these wives. He's got these servants. He's got all kinds of children, a host of servants. Not to mention, he's got all kinds of animals that are depending on him. He no doubt feels the weight of this responsibility on him. So we see the context, the location, his responsibilities. And then we see the physical difficulty he's under. He leads every one of these people and these things through the water in the middle of the night. There's no street lights. There's no bridges. He's exhausted and he's tired. The physical difficulty of this, he's drained mentally and physically as well. And he has to lead all of these people that he cares about over this ford of Javik. The letter E, we find that he's also between two burned bridges, two broken relationships. He has Laban on one side that he's destroyed this relationship with and he's fled. And then he also has Esau on the other side. The state, the situation that he's in, he is in a mess. Then lastly, we see he's all alone. After he does this, he leads everything he owns across this ford. He is all by himself. It's at this point that Jacob goes to pull up a rock to go to sleep. He finally wants to get some rest. I need some rest. I'm tired. I'm distraught. And he knows that his brother has 400 men looking for him, approaching him. And he lays down to get a little rest. And all of a sudden, somebody grabs him. Most likely, he probably thought it's either Laban or Esau. But he's in for the surprise of a lifetime. All the situations that Jacob had been through was setting up this point in time in his life. Have you ever noticed that in your own life, that in the midst of difficult situations and difficulties, that you may have lots of people around you, but you feel isolated and all alone? It can drive you to seek solace in others, but... That in and of itself is not necessarily wrong. But those situations are to bring you face to face with God. So first we saw Jacob's state of his situation. He's in a mess. But number two, I want you to see Jacob's struggle. We see this in verse 24b through 26. It says, And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. The word here for wrestled means to get dusty. It literally means in the Hebrew to dig in with the feet as to stir up dust. It's a word picture. It's to be in face-to-face, closed hand-to-hand combat. And when you are wrestling, you put your foot in the ground. And when you do, it stirs up dust. That's the idea. It's the word picture of what's going on. They said a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Remember how exhausted he is. And this takes place throughout the night. Jacob had been wrestling his whole life to get the upper hand for himself. Jacob thought everyone else was the problem. It started before he was born. If you remember when Rebekah was pregnant with Jacob and Esau, she had experienced a violent internal commotion in her womb. So much so that she went to inquire of the Lord and God told her. So the text actually says that the children struggled together within her. The word for struggled means to mistreat, to oppress, to shatter, to smash, to smite or to strike down. God tells her that there's two nations at war in her womb. Talk about a rough pregnancy. What's going on inside of her? This would also be fulfilled in the people of Eden and Israel. The progeny of these two men. Secondly, not only did it start before he was born... He had also wrestled with Esau to outscheme him for his birthright. And thirdly, he had wrestled Esau and his dad to, to, uh, to receive the birthright. He had got the, uh, the birthright and then the, he outschemed him for the blessing. And then he had, he had wrestled with his father-in-law Laban over and over, back and forth. He had almost met his match in his father-in-law. God was showing Jacob through Laban someone who was like himself. 
Someone who would deceive and be deceived. Over and over he, he saw someone who would love deception and use deception like he did. And it made him sick. Now we see Jacob wrestle another assailant. Jacob seems as though he's getting tired of all the fighting though. Before our text we find him asking God to, to bring him out of this seemingly future war with Esau in verse number 11 and 12 of chapter 32 he says please deliver me from the hand of my brother from the hand of Esau for I fear him that he may come and attack me the mothers with the children but you said I will surely do you good and make your offsprings as the sand of the sea which cannot be numbered for multitude he seems as though he's getting tired of all the wrestling and fighting so he asks God for help then in verses 24 through 26 we get a short Play by play of this altercation. It says this, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. This is an intense struggle that seems to reach a stalemate. Wrestling is a full body activity. Anybody else, anybody in here wrestled? Big Ed, we should have known that. Wrestling is a full body activity. Science says that almost every muscle in your body is activated when you wrestle. It's exhausting. And Jacob was already tired leading into this event. The man here that it says, the man does something that I did not expect to read. He touches Jacob in the hip, hip socket. Taking his power and his ability. Genesis 32, 26 says, Then he said, Let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Jacob's opponent immobilizes him. Can you imagine how difficult it would be to wrestle with a dislocated hip? All he's left with now is the ability to just hold on. I must admit, reading this text is a little unsettling when we stop and think about What's actually taking place here? I just listed for you the context. Jacob's exhausted in every way imaginable, scared and doesn't know how all this is going to play out. He has schemed one last plan to appease his brother. He's reminded God of his covenant. Then he lays down to get a little bit of rest before he sees how it's all going to shake out. And then out of nowhere, some mysterious assailant grabs him. But it's not just any assailant. We have the benefit of reading through this quickly and we can see what's going on. That's the unsettling part when we see who this attacker is. Jacob's on the ground and all of a sudden he, he's grabbed. He, when he's grabbed, probably thinks it's Esau or Laban. His father-in-law is on one side, Esau's on the other, so he probably thinks it's one of them. But as the text unfolds, we learn, along with Jacob, the identity of this mysterious assailant. It is none other than God Himself. The writer starts out by calling the antagonist a man. By the end, we are told that it is God Himself. Jacob will even name the place where this event happens after the fact that this is God in verse number 30. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel saying, for I have seen God face to face and yet my life has been delivered. Also in Hosea 12, it mentions this event, Hosea 12, three through five in the womb, he took his brother by the hill and in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is His memorial name. There seems to be a shift in the text in Jacob's understanding. Once his hip is dislocated, he begins to hold on and to ask for a blessing. That's not usually done. That's something out of the ordinary. It appears that he's beginning to realize that this is no mere man that he's wrestling with. Verse 26, but Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. I don't know about you, but this still is not a comforting thought. It creates a lot of questions that will lead us into point number three. 
Jacob's surrender. So we see Jacob's state or situation that leads us into Jacob's struggle, but he'd struggled all his life, leading to this point where he meets an antagonist. And then we see Jacob surrender, verse number 27. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Here God asked, what is his name? Jacob finally has to admit that he's the problem. I'm Jacob. I'm the scammer. I'm the cheater. I'm the scoundrel. This is what will happen when you come face to face with a holy God. You will see yourself in reality. You can think of Job or Isaiah. That happens to them. You can already see changes that was taking place in the life of, of this man. You can see growth that's already starting to happen since he met God at Bethel. When, when that happened, there was a conditional vow he made. He said, uh, in that, in, when he made that vow, he said that if you will do these things for me, I, you will be my God. You are my allegiance. That's when he first met God. But then here in chapter 32, he begins to pray and he has humility and he's honoring and respecting God. There's changes that have taken place somewhat since he met God originally. He has more humility. This question about Jacob's identity, though, should cause us to think of a prior event. Why is God asking him this question about who are you? What's your name? Do you remember the last time Jacob was asked this question? His dad Isaac asked his identity and he lied about it. He changed his own name and said, I'm Esau to receive a blessing. Now Jacob asked for a blessing and God asked his name in a very similar fashion that got the whole mess started to begin with. Because he lied and changed his name, he received the blessing and had to flee. Esau wanted to kill him and that was 20 years prior to this event. Now I want you to see the last point. Jacob's success. Not only Jacob's state or situation and Jacob's struggle or Jacob's surrender that shows from his confession that he sees he's the problem. That he has to confess what got the whole situation started was the deception to get the blessing, but he did need a name change. Jacob's success, verses 28 to 32. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. So what's going on with this name change? Jacob had previously changed his name to cheat and receive a blessing. God reveals that he does need a name change to receive a blessing. Sydney, I can't even pronounce this, uh, it's in the notes. Uh, a guy named Sidney, we'll quote him. He uh, is from Preaching Christ from Genesis Foundations for Expository Sermons. I can pronounce that. Uh, <clears throat> says there is some ambiguity in the name Israel for some scholars. The narrator relates that Jacob is named Israel, for you have striven with God. The etymology associates Israel with the root plus L, which means God. Israel then means one who strives with God. But some experts in Hebrew maintain that, that El cannot be the object, but must be the subject. So that Israel means God strives instead of the one who strives with God. This meaning, however, is still ambiguous. Is God striving for Jacob or against him? The answer appears to be both. In this narrative, God strives against Jacob when he attacks him in the dark and cripples him. God knocks the self-sufficiency out of Jacob, but according to God's promise at Bethel, God also strives for Jacob, never forsaking him. So that there is some ambiguity in the word Israel, that it can be Jacob strives, one who strives with God, or it can be that God strives for or against. And I believe the ambiguity is there purposefully, as we will see how do we fight with God and how God fights with us. And also there's significance in the name change that will be seen throughout Israel, the namesake for the nation that will come from Jacob's 12 sons. The text of Genesis characterizes Jacob's life as one of conflict and struggle. And this new name captures the theological import of his struggles with man and God. This would embody the nation of Israel throughout its history. 
His life was lived out through the nation of Israel, as we would see. Verse number 29 says this, Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob asked for the antagonist's name, and he says, Why is it you ask my name? Some scholars say the question implied that Jacob knew who his companion was about re- uh, that he was wrestling with. So they say, well, the reason that, that God did not answer him is he's saying, well, you already know who I am. Sproul on this says, when he asks, why are you asking my name? Sproul says this, quote, In ancient times, a name was thought to express essential nature as well as identity. The divine name partakes of the sacredness of God's being. And was to be reverenced. The pagans believed that knowing the name of a God imparted ability to invoke that deity's power. Here, however, the divine name is withheld, showing that the Lord's revelation of His name is a gracious act of divine initiative. Remember, He tells Moses His name. So He says, here, however, the divine name is withheld, showing that the Lord's revelation of His name is a gracious act of divine initiative, not a response to human effort to invoke and control God. There are other possibilities, but in quote, end quote. There are other possibilities, but it seems that God is exerting control here. One of the big questions in this text that's raised is the concern of whether or not God could defeat Jacob. Remember what's said. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was out of, put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Remember the Hosea passage too. It says this, in his manhood he strove with God, he strove and prevailed. The word for manhood means power, strength, might, or youthful vigor. You also remember when Jacob met Rachel, who would be his wife. She's waiting. She was a shepherdess and she's waiting out there because she could not take this big stone off the well. She's waiting for all the shepherds to come. And Jacob, all by himself, grabs this big rock and moves it. He was a beast of a man. But does that mean that he could could take God on -on one-on-one? Could God not defeat him? I believe God is showing and exerting control by saying, I will not tell you. So what are we to make of this? Some explain it away as saying it was a dream or perhaps a river God that grabbed Jacob up. I don't think it was a dream because as he goes away, he walks away from this incident with a real life physical limp. And of course, there's nothing but a river God. Genesis 32, uh, 31 says the sun rose upon him as he passed limping because of his hip. He had this physical thing because of this interaction with his antagonist. And the text we read says he was a man, an angel, and God. It appears to be God, the angel of the Lord, making an appearance as a man. I believe personally that this is a theophany and may very well possibly be a Christophany. A Christophany is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I will say there's no way to say for sure. Now let's also think about this logically for a minute. In the angel of the Lord killed 185,000 of the best trained soldiers of the best army in the world at that time in 2 Kings 19.35. Do you really think... Jacob could go toe-to-toe with God all by himself. The God that created not only Jacob, but created the universe and holds the universe all together by himself. Do you think Jacob could do that? Of course not. Let's also look at Jacob's post-fight interview. Is he filled with pride? How does he describe this this fight in his interview? How... When you hear Jacob on the incident, he doesn't say, I almost had him. I was winning until he cheated with that illegal move he used when he touched my hip. That's not what he says. He says, I came face to face with God and my life was preserved. 
His assessment is he didn't kill me. His statement is that God could have killed me and he knew it. What's the point? It wasn't that God intended to kill him, but the blessing. God didn't want to destroy him, but to transform him. Jacob thought everyone else was the problem. He even prays and asked God to deliver him from his brother Esau. But little did he know he needed delivering from himself. Verse 30 in chapter 32, he says, So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Then it says, 31, The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. There are two markers in this 20-year lifespan. One was when he was leaving the promised land, and the other when he was about to re-enter that we're reading here. When Jacob fled from the promised land, the Bible says the sun set. And after our event, it says the sun rose upon him. Very vivid imagery of what's taking place. That the dark time as he's fleeing from the presence of, of his brother. And then here, as God changes him, changes his name, representative of what he's doing, transforming him, that now... The sun is uh, set, it is rising. At each place, he had a revelation of God. Each place, he named the place based off his interaction or his revelation of God. Genesis 28 11, it says there that uh, uh, he, had, uh, he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. There seems to be a progression. God revealed Himself to him at Bethel in a dream, but now He meets him face to face to change him. Then it comes to the final verse in our text. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because He touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. The Jews have traditionally avoided eating the sciatic nerve of the hindquarters of animals. This practice was not a divine command, but a human custom. The practice was to honor this significant event in the life of this patriarch. To mark what happened here. So now let's talk about what's going on in this passage. What, why did Moses write this and what does it mean to us? Seems like an unusual, obscure text. One of the most obscure in all the Bible. God comes disguised as a man in the cover of darkness and initiates a season of uncertainty. Wrestles to what appears, appears to be a stalemate. Then with a touch and a question, breaks Jacob. The struggle would be emblematic of the people of Israel throughout the life of God's people. It would also explain the struggle between Israel and Edom that would come later. You can remember in Numbers 20 what happened. Moses sends to, uh, to Edom and asked for safe passage through their land. They wouldn't let them. He asked again, said we won't, we won't take anything. We won't do anything. We won't touch anything. And they said, no, we'll kill you. It just terrible relationship between the two. God will make sure that His people are different. You remember the text Josh read this morning? We will be different. He will make sure that we're different. He will do that even if He has to take matters into His own hands. There's textual setup for the fight that shows Jacob's independence that God will break. And I want to show you those. First, there's the in 32.1, there's the phrase angels of God that's used. This exact phrasing is used only here and in chapter 28, verse 12, about the angels of God ascending and descending on the ladder. And in verse 1, God sends these angels, it's the word Malachi. I'm sure I'm butchering that. I'm glad Carr's not here. Malachi, which means messengers. By the way, that's where the name Malachi comes from, which meaning my messenger. It's the same word for angels. I believe what's going on is it's showing that he is 
self-sufficient. It's showing the self-sufficient, scheming nature of Jacob. He sees God do something and then he's going to mirror it and do it himself. Verse 1 says, chapter 32, Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And then verse 3, and Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother. God sends these Malachi. And Jacob says, oh, I'm going to send my Malachi. I'm going to fix the problem. I'm going to I see what God does and I'm going to do the same thing to fix my own problem. Then number two, you see the word for camp. Mahanaim and present are similar. These words have the three cons- the same consonant base, M, N, H. In Hebrew, you'll have the base or a root, three letter, uh, primarily a three letter root or base. And these words are similar. They share the same base, the same consonants. So they sound similar. They, and then you see in a, Verse 30, uh, 30, chapter 32, 2, And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the, pla- the name of that place Mahanaim. You likely have a footnote in your Bible that says this means two camps. He, he likely names it that because there's God's camp and there's Jacob's camp. But it's also likely prefiguring that he would divide up into two camps. So it uses the same wording. Yet again, he sees God, something originate with God, and then he, it leads to him scheming a plan to do something himself. He sees God do this, and then it leads him to this idea, I am going to divide up into two camps, and then I'm going to send these presents to my brother and divide them up into droves. He sees something in God, and then he schemes his own way. And then the third set is the words for Jacob, Jabbok, and the word for wrestle. These three share the same three root consonants. And they sound the same. It would sound like Jacob is Jacob, and wrestled is Yeabek, and Jabbok is Yeabek. So as these all through the text as you're hearing that Jacob wrestled at Jabbok and you hear this wrestle Jacob over and over, you're going to hear Jacob, 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 Jacob. Which is exactly who Jacob lived for. The narrator, I want you to see this, that the, Jacob's name and his name change is central to this narrative. The narrator only uses one and a half verses to describe the fight. Four verses for the dialogue. One verse for the naming of Penel. One verse for the outcome. And one verse to conclude the story. And one man says this, The dialogue in the center of the narrative would lead us to suspect that the dialogue holds the clue for the central meaning or theme of this narrative. On the basis of repetition, Folkelman suggests an intricate chiastic structure focusing on the dialogue, which in turn focuses on the name change from Jacob to Israel. You're here. Jacob, 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 Jacob. He needs to change. Which is why God says, what is your name? I am a scoundrel. I'm a cheat. I'm a supplanter. It's all about me. Everything I do is about me. And God says, no more, no more. God is going to remove the stubborn self-sufficiency from Jacob. Moses is telling the people of Israel that his people will be different. You're not going to be allowed to be self-sufficient. God will see to that. So we see how God does this in the life of Jacob. But what about us? How does God change us? Does he do it the same way? Does God wrestle us? Listen to John Calvin on this. This is... Long quote, but listen carefully. Wherefore is it right to keep in view this design, which is to represent all the servants of God in this world as wrestlers? You're a wrestler. Do you know that? Calvin says so. Because the Lord exercises them with various kinds of conflicts. Moreover, it is not said that Satan or any mortal man wrestled with Jacob, but God Himself. 
to teach us that our faith is tried by Him. And whenever we are tempted, our business is truly with Him. Not only because we fight under His auspices, but because He is an antagonist. Descends into the arena to try our strength. This, though, at first sight seems absurd. Experience and reason teaches us to be true. For as all prosperity flows from His goodness, so adversity is either the rod with which He corrects our sins or the test of our faith and patience. And since there is no kind of temptation by which God does not try His faithful people, the similitude is very suitable which represents Him as coming hand to hand to combat with them. Therefore, what was once exhibited under a visible form to our father Jacob is daily fulfilled in the individual members of the church. Namely, that in their temptations it is necessary for them to wrestle with God. That God, end quote, that God wrestles with us through the circumstances that He brings in our lives. That He uses the conflicts to shape us, to change us the same way that He did Jacob. That He wrestles with us. Do we get that? If this is true, then how do we wrestle with God and win? Calvin again. Got to stick with Calvin. If he's going to pose this, we're going to see how he, how he resolves this. But the question now occurs... Who is able to stand against an antagonist at whose breath alone all flesh perishes and vanishes away? At, has, at, at, at whose look the mountains melt and whose word or beck the whole world is shaken to pieces and therefore to attempt the least contest with him would be insane temerity. But it is, it is an, an, an easy to untie the knot. It's an, it's, it is easy to untie the knot. For we do not fight against Him except by His own power and with His own weapons. For He having challenged us to the contest at the same time furnishes us with the means of resistance so that He both fights against us and for us. In short, such is an apportioning of this conflict that while He assails us with one hand, He defends us with the other. Yet inasmuch as He supplies us with more strength to resist than He employs in opposing us, we may truly and properly say that He fights against us with His left hand and for us with His right hand. For while He lightly opposes us, He supplies invincible strength whereby we overcome. It is true He remains at perfect unity with Himself, but the double method in which He deals with us cannot be otherwise expressed than that in striking us with a human rod, He does not put forth His full strength in the temptation, but that in granting the victory to our faith, He becomes in us stronger by the power with which He opposes us. And although these forms of expression are harsh, yet their harshness will be easily mitigated in practice. For if temptations are contests, and we know that they are not accidental, but are divinely appointed for us, it follows hence that God acts in the character of an antagonist, and on this the rest depends, namely that in the temptation it appears it itself He appears to be weak against us, that He may conquer in us. He's doing something in the difficulties. I think of it when Cole was younger. Cole was little. I'd wrestle with him. And if you were looking from the outside, you'd think he was really staying with me. Now, he could now. Um, don't tell him, though. But I would wrestle with him, and, and it looked like... So I, there were sometimes I would let him beat me. Why would I do that? Because I was building something into him for the relationship, for his well-being. So the struggle that we would have I was doing something. And God is doing something in the difficulty. Does that seem mean of God to you? For God to attack His people using things that are painful? We know God is sovereign, sovereign, but if that's true, is God still good? One more time from Calvin. Quote, For it is far better for the sons of God to be blessed, though mutilated and half destroyed, 
than to desire that peace and that peace in which they shall fall asleep, or then they should withdraw themselves from the presence of God, so as to turn away from His command that they may write with the wicked. End quote. It's far better to be mutilated, he says, and half destroyed than to desire peace that will cause us to fall away from God. God does this to transform us. Jacob's success is in the fact that he surrendered. He finally admitted who he was and God changed him, blesses him and changed him. So what's the point of this narrative? What's the point for us here today? It wasn't Esau who could prevent him from entering the promised land. Only God could do that. It was not Esau that he needed to fear. It was God. God doesn't change His promises and plans to fit His people. He changes His people to fit His promises and His plans. God gives him, His people the blessing of transformation and dependence on Himself. We are changed by coming into contact with God. 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us that. As we behold the Lord, we're changed into that image. But God also uses trial and difficulty to change us. James 1 tells us that. God uses these things to build Christ-like character into us. We're about to come to the table. Change only comes through God. Jacob's story is our story. It's how we are blessed through Christ. Jesus was the ultimate wrestler. God the Son endured the agonizing assault of God the Father so that the grace grace and blessing might flow to us. It pleased the Lord to crush Him. Isaiah 53, it's all through there. Surely He has borne our griefs. Notice this, the things that He went, He was mutilated, He was destroyed. But it was for us. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we have seen Him stricken, smitten of God, afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. He was oppressed and afflicted by oppression and judgment. And it says He was stricken for the transgression of my people. It goes on to say, they made His grave with the wicked and with a rich man in His death. Verse 10, yet it was the will or the pleasure of the Lord to crush him. And he was put, he put him to grief. And then it says, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, not his guilt, our guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, speaking of the resurrection. It says, out of the anguish of his soul, see him as the wrestler, wrestling God says He will make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide Him a portion with the many and He shall divide the spoil with the strong because He poured out His soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet He bore the sin of many and made, makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus suffered more than a dislocated hip and He still clung to the Father. He continued entrusting Himself to the Father, as 1 Peter 2.23 says. He suffered for us that we may be transformed into His image, that we might prevail with God. Genesis 3.15 tells us the promise of the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. Genesis tells us that God promises that through Abraham's seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. When God chose Isaac over Ishmael, that made sense. When we get to the story of Jacob and Esau, it appears though God gets it wrong. Jacob was not a good person. But it's our story. It's a story of redemption. Ephesians 2 tells us that, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And that we once walked. And it tells us all that. But God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us that Josh read about this morning. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Not because you deserved it. 
even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why did He do it? Well, because He loved us, but that's not the foundation. That's not the root. So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ. That we would be trophies in His trophy case showing how great He is. That's why He picked Jacob. To change him so that God would look glorious. If we look like we deserved it, it doesn't give God as much glory. So what do we do with this? God will design times of wrestling for you. Know this. Remember this. And remember what's going on in difficult times. Secondly, be grateful for those times. James 1 through 4 Tells us to submit to God's purpose in the testings. He says, and let. First says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let. Submit to it. Let it do what it's supposed to do. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. And lastly, know that we're not lone rangers doing our own thing, scheming through life. God won't allow that. He put us in to a body for a particular reason. We're going to read here in a couple minutes from 1 Corinthians 11. He keeps saying, when you come together, when you come together, when you come together, we are one lump. And the very fact that we are about to come to the table is evidence of the fact that we are not what we used to be. We are not self-reliant. We are God-reliant. We come to the table not because of who we are, but because who He is and who He is making us into. We have faith in Christ and this reality that He is changing us and He has changed us. We come to the table saying, I see evidence of transformation in all of you. God is a God of transformation. And if you don't see those evidences, something is wrong. Because He will not leave you like you were for the sake of Christ. Let us pray. Father God, we thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You so much for Your Son who came into this earth to save sinners, to change us, to make us like Himself. God, we pray that You would use Your Word for Your purpose. Make us more like You. These things we ask in Christ's name. Amen.